Built Not Born, episode 19. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Mike Trombetta. Mike Trombetta, a native of Flemington, New Jersey, grew a passion for mountain living, skiing, and gourmet cooking. After attending culinary school in Vermont, Mike headed west to the Sierra Nevada mountains to start a new life in Truckee, California. Mike has a fascinating and adventurous career path. Mike is a ski patrolman, a wilderness first responder, and a member of the mountain search and rescue team in Lake Tahoe, California. In the summers, Mike does what he calls low-stress guiding for hiking, mountain biking, and kayak tours for Tahoe Adventures. And he is also a professionally trained gourmet chef. But the main reason I asked Mike to be on the show is that for eight weeks each year, Mike is a helicopter ski guide in Alaska for the Alaska Rendezvous Company in Valdez, Alaska, where he leads guests from the resort in Alaska on and off a helicopter, then down the mountain for what Mike calls the greatest skiing on earth. Mike is a certified wilderness first responder and is level three American Avalanche Institute certified. Mike is also a proud member of the Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue Team and an entrepreneur with his gourmet catering company named Farm to Belly. Mike and I discuss what it is like when a helicopter drops you off on a remote mountain in Alaska, and there is nothing but you, your guide, and the mountain for as far as your eyes can see. Mike shares some amazing stories of rescuing a friend from what he calls the biggest avalanche he has ever seen, almost a mile in length down the bowl of a mountain. He also shares some survival tips that every skier needs to know if they ever find themselves caught in an avalanche. Mike and I cover the book he goes back to most often, why he keeps a daily journal, and what it is like trying to grow a small business in a resort area like Lake Tahoe. Mike discusses his philosophy why a guide and a first responder needs to be an asset, not a liability, when trouble goes down, and what it is like to train his first ever avalanche rescue dog, a black lab named Grapple. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Mike Trombetta, ski patrolman, wilderness first responder, Alaska helicopter ski guide, gourmet chef, and entrepreneur. And remember, life is built, not born. Mike Trombetta, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? My name is Mike Trombetta. I grew up in New Jersey. I spent my youth through there, through high school, and then ended up in Vermont, where I went to culinary school at New England Culinary Institute. 1999, I moved to Truckee, California, North Lake Tahoe region, to follow my dream of cooking and skiing, being in the mountains. I want to get into skiing. And also too, I want to get into doing some research on you, Mike. I understand you were the first person I've ever met 
that does the the extreme helicopter skiing in Alaska? Is that- uh, yeah, sure. You could call it that. That's what people might call it. But we've got skiing for everybody up there. We do ski out of helicopters. We've got a fantastic lodge, restaurant, bar, a couple of helicopters out back. We're located at 45 mile of the Richardson Highway, just north of Valdez, Alaska. This lodge is called Alaska Rendezvous Heli Ski Lodge, managed and operated by a girl named Allie Miners, whose father was a huge influence on my life. His name was Theo. He was the founder of the business, a very passionate part of my life. I want to get into all that. I want to get into what brought you to Alaska, what it's like jumping out of a helicopter to ski in Alaska or a culinary school. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Flemington, New Jersey. So Northwest New Jersey, we were about 45 minutes out of New York City. You know, awesome. about an hour, a little more out of Philly. Okay. Right. So you're fr- from the East Coast. All right. How'd you decide to go to culinary school? When I was in high school, I knew a couple of guys who were taking vocational classes through our high school, culinary classes, and they'd spend about half of their day cooking in a commercial kitchen with a chef who had quite a bit of experience. It was fantastic at what he did. He learned everything about running a restaurant, baking bread, do washing the dishes, scrubbing the floors, the hard work and the glamorous stuff. It was, they actually had a little restaurant that was open to the public as well as to the teachers. So that's where I started. I figured out that people eat all over the world and this was something I would be able to take with me. And I knew I wanted to, to travel and move on. If we go back even a little bit further, what was it like around your dinner table when you're say 10 years old? Who was there? What was going on? What was the scene? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Great scene. Mom, dad, my brother's about three years older than me. Family dinners around the inside table, summertime outside table, fresh corn from this farm stand down the road, zucchini and tomatoes out of the garden right there. Uh, Great neighborhood. Lucky enough to grow up in a really fantastic neighborhood with good people, good adults, good kids. How much were you involved in cooking when you were younger? When did you first realize, wow, not only do I like to eat good food, but I like to prepare good food? Not until high school, not until I started going and taking some of these courses, taking some of these classes. With Chef Peabody, I realized how interesting it was and how fun it was. You could be creative. When you were younger, who was your biggest influence when you were a kid? My most, brother. Your brother? How so? My brother. Every, everything. He was two and a half, three years older. And uh, I just wanted to be like him. Chase him around all the time and try That's... to play ball with him. And whatever they wanted to do. That's what I wanted to do. How did you decide to go from New Jersey up in the New England to, to <laughs> culinary school? What was the pivot point there? Yeah, this is a good one. We were we were talking about schools and it was wintertime of my senior year of high school. And I had a good buddy, a couple of good friends, and we were talking about going to take a trip to Vermont to go skiing. And I tell my parents, hey, there's this culinary school up there I really want to go to. And we're going to go check it out. We're going to go skiing. We drove through a storm all the way from New Jersey to Southern Vermont. It was snowing really hard. We stopped uh, about an hour and a half south of the school, did a couple of days of snowboarding down there, turned around, drove home through the snow, got home, was like, yep, I'm going to school in Vermont. Here we go. Never even saw the campus. <laughs> perfect. That's, that's just per- perfect. Did some research, talked to some people that have been there on the phone and realized that that was the spot for me. I'm, I've always loved skiing, being in the mountains and just being out there making turns. And I was very passionate about it then and knew that was something I wanted to chase. So you're skiing and cooking basically up there. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I was, yeah. Trying to go to school when I wanted to ski every day. What's your next move? So then I ended up in Stowe, Vermont for about two years, more skiing and cooking. Took a trip. My first trip to the west to go skiing with a, a great friend of mine. We were in Utah and we skied for about a week and there was fresh snow every day. Every morning I woke up with four to 12 inches of fresh snow and went home at the end of that trip and talked to who's now my wife. And I said to her, if somebody knocks on my door and tells me they're moving to the west coast, I'm going. Like I'm, I knew I was ready after that trip. And well, about two weeks later, a couple of buddies showed up and they said, hey, we're moving to Tahoe. 
So one of your buddies out of the blue said they're moving to Lake Tahoe. Yeah. yeah. How'd they choose Tahoe of all the great places out West? I think quantity of snow at okay. that point. The, the amount of snow we, we get on average out here is pretty significant. And, and the natural beauty out there, it's hard. It, it, the pictures, the videos, like, it's hard to describe without actually stepping foot. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. All right, so you get out there to Tahoe with your first impressions. Just gorgeous. The lake, the mountains, the big blue sky with typically one cloud, very vibrant blue and the depth of colors to the rocks, the tree, the different green, greens in the trees and the moss and the lake, the different blues in the lake. How would you compare? So you're out there skiing in Tahoe. What, what's the first mountain you jumped on? I really fell in love with Alpine Meadows when I came here. I really liked the small ski area atmosphere as opposed to resort. There was just the, just the ski area food service and the one or two small bars, no real restaurants, no hotels, a lot of hiking access and good terrain. So Squaw Valley obviously has the best terrain in the area. It's also got a lot of people. So it just depends on what you want to do. But back then I fell in love with Alpine Meadows. How long were you out there till you knew, not only am I going to be out here for a visit, I'm going to stay? Yeah, funny. A couple summers, actually, because I always thought that I'd move on and go to a couple different ski towns. And while I love to visit all the different ski areas everywhere, I like to travel. That's the one thing I always say. One of the best parts about living here is coming back. It doesn't matter if I'm coming home from Costa Rica or the North Shore of Kauai or Alaska or wherever. I'm always happy to come back to Truckee and know that we've got a great spot and very lucky to live where we do. How'd you pick Truckee? That's a remarkable little town. How, how did you pick that? Housing at the time. It's funny. Housing's a big uh, story here. There's none. It's very mm. just like highly sought after areas where people want to live, ski towns and tourist areas. There's no housing, right? It's a lot of short-term rentals. So people that are workforce can't actually find the housing they need to live. Well, even 20 years ago, it was very similar. We, I called around to a bunch of different uh, realtors and second home to try and find a spot. And everybody tried to push me towards Reno, said, hey, there's nothing here. You're not going to find anything. Finally, I talked to a guy who's a good friend now, 20 years later, and he said, you need a place to live. I'll go move in with my girlfriend. You can have my house. So wow. it's just worked out. And like I said, he's now got a daughter. That's my daughter's age. And they're school together and families and friends. And yeah, it's pretty neat how it works. For those who are not familiar with Truckee, describe the town. It's a, it's a really neat little town. Truckee's a town of about 17,000 people these days, located just off Route 80 in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. We're about 40 miles from Reno about three, three and a half hours from the San Francisco Bay area, 13 fantastic ski resorts in the local area, huge, gorgeous lake, along with multiple smaller, beautiful lakes, incredible skiing, biking, hiking, climbing, anything you can want to do outdoors. If Walt Disney was going to design a little mountain town, it would look like Truckee. It looks like a Disney set when you're walking down. All right, let's go skiing. How did you get involved in the Alaska Rendezvous? How did you get, how did you get involved there in the helicopter skiing? Take us to that. Some of the first guys I started snowboarding with when I first moved here had been going up there for a few years, competing in the World Extreme Ski Championships, which was a competition held up there at the time, involved in the early days of helicopter skiing. So I fell in with the right people and I saved a bunch of money. And went up one year, we, we uh, some of us drove and some of us flew. We drove up and towed snowmobiles with us, and other guys flew in and picked up the RVs. And then we met in Valdez or on Thompson Pass. We spent about five weeks in the RVs on the pass and snowmobiling and hiking and skiing and snowboarding and waiting for good snow. During that time, I realized that I didn't know what it was going to take, but I was going to be back and be back every year. And that was 2003. This year will be 20 years. I've been there every year, so it's a uh, absolute passion. I love it more than anything, except my family. So you're one of the guides up there. What's an experience of doing helicopter skiing? And you fly into Anchorage and then either you, you rent a car and drive four hours to our lodge or you fly into Valdez and we go pick you up and we bring you up to our lodge. And we've got a 
really cool little Alaskan lodge, small, eight rooms, sauna, massage therapist, a fantastic restaurant, bar, a couple helicopters out the back door. All the staff lives right on site for the season. The helicopters, helicopter pilots live on site. So we're all ready to work at a moment's notice. If we're waiting out a storm and the storm breaks, we can fly at the drop of a hat because everybody's positioned where they need to be. We all stay right on site. So you come in, you stay in our lodge, eat and drink in our little restaurant there, ski with us. We fly four guests, one guide and one pilot. We like to ski in pods, two or three groups in the same area or same zone, not necessarily on the same run, but same zone. So people are around for safety and it's the best ski in the world. Describe the scene. Sure. Helicopter right out back. We've got a, a helicopter deck marked out. People are staged off to the side. So the excitement builds. Helicopters wrapped in the morning. We come are covered. So we come out, we take the covers off, we fuel them up. People are starting to get excited. Four guests and a guide. So the lead group will load up with the helicopters cold, as we say, not running right. First thing in the morning, we'll put them in the back, four guests in the back, guide in the front left seat, pilot in the front. We'll lift and our first lift is anywhere from two to 25 miles from home, depending on where we're going. We can fly 14 miles to the east, about 35 to the west. We can go south, we can go north. What type of helicopter are you flying? A-Stars. One of the best things about our company, Alaska Rendezvous, for me as a guide, is we've been working with the same helicopter company for about 10 years now. Coastal Helicopters out of Juneau, Alaska. Fantastic operation and incredible pilots. We get the same pilots every year, which... As a guy who's been doing this for a long time, he's got a family, 11-year-old daughter at home. To me, it's very important you know, mm. to know the guys I'm working with, as the guides as well as the pilots. They know the typical winds at base. They know our landings and our drop-offs. They know our guide tendencies. They mm. know when I get in the helicopter, if I look a little different or if I'm acting a little different, they know maybe I need a second or maybe something's going on. Maybe they should speak up. So it's uh, incredibly comforting and efficient for us to have the same guys every year and uh it's a lot of what it takes for me to go back. Same guide, same pilot. We're a team, we're a family. Chemistry and culture, you can't beat that if you're operating helicopter skiing or you're an accounting firm in New York City. Like you can't beat culture, you can't beat chemistry. Those two things just go hand in hand for team. So sure. does the helicopter land? Do you just hop off? How's that work? It land, yeah, <laughs> great question. We get that one a lot. Yeah. 99% of the time, the helicopter's got two skids on the ground, collectives down. <laughs> pilot can take, take his hands off. That's the ideal situation. That's what the FAA wants. That's what the bosses want. That's what the guides and the pilots want. So we want to be able to sit nice and flat. That said, it doesn't mean it's always the most comfortable place to get out of a helicopter and take your skis and huddle up with a group of four and then let this couple thousand pound machine lift up, lift up and off of you because it's you know got quite a downwash and it lifts up and off. Even if you do have a nice flat spot to sit on top, it can be somewhat uncomfortable for some people when the aircraft lifts off and pulls away. But then when it's gone, it's complete silence. And you're up there wow. with you know you and four other people in the middle of nowhere. Like I said, maybe you're two miles from the from the lodge and you can see it down there and you can see the river. And maybe you're 25 miles northwest and somewhere you've never been before. That must be so wild. First, when that helicopter kicks up, that is probably just the ultimate snow dust storm. It's got to be is everyone just covered with snow after that when it lifts up? It's cold though. It's a dry snow. So <laughs> eight or ten seconds and it's gone and that's wild. That feeling when that copter leaves, you're just there with complete nature, quiet, silence, right? It's, it's amazing. Got- the, the vastness of the train, the mountain range goes on forever. The only thing you might see other than that, 
you might be able to catch a glimpse of the road. You might be able to see the river, but it's just mountains in all directions. It's amazing. On the right days, you can see north to Denali. You can see east to the Wrangell St. Elias National Preserve. It's pretty incredible. So when you ski down as a guide, there's no trail. How do you know where to stop or how does that work? Typically, the guide leads. It depends on where you are and the type of terrain you're in is according to how close they'll follow you. Each run or each section of runs got different instructions for the guests. So it just depends. It just depends. Sometimes we can ski close together. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we ski one at a time. We ski to islands of safety one at a time. Oh, it's up to the guide where the trail ends or where you stop. Like they just following your lead basically. Exactly. Right? And we'll have communication with the pilot. So they typically know where about where we want to stop, about where we want to be, uh, group up at the end. What we call a PZ pickup zone. Okay. Then the helicopter's waiting for, then the helicopter finds you where you are basically and they pick you up where you are. So they drop you off, you do your skiing. And then when you're done, you jump back in the helicopter. That's basically, yeah, that, that's, the chair, yes. that's the chair lift. Correct. Sometimes it's waiting for you. And sometimes you sit around, and wait a little bit. If they have to go in for fuel, if you've got a couple of different groups out, sometimes you wait a couple of minutes, but that is wild. How, how much do you ski before the copter gets you? Our runs are about anywhere between 2,500 and 5,500 vertical feet, depending on the snow quality, time of year, conditions, all that type of thing. How do you figure out avalanche risk and stuff like that? How do you figure that out on those just wild, untouched mountains like that? How does that work? Sure. All our guides are All our front seat guides are level three or level two pro avalanche certified. So lots of experience is what that boils down to. Lots of time in the field, lots of hands-on time. We've got an avalanche forecaster that works for the business. One of our guides at the same time, each one of our guides is their own forecaster. All day, every day that we're out there, feet, hands in the snow, constantly assessing the snowpack and constantly discussing our findings with fellow guides to make sure we're all seeing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I heard that the technology is amazing now with the avalanche stuff where you pull, it's like an airbag at at times. Uh, Can you describe that? What's that like? Yeah. So it's another tool for the box, right? So avalanche airbag is exactly as you explained. It's a backpack that you keep your other safety equipment in your avalanche shovel probe, a little water, a little food, extra layer, that type of thing. But attached inside the air, inside the backpack is an airbag attached to a handle on one of your shoulder straps in the event of an emergency where you're concerned about being buried in an avalanche, then you can pull the handle and the airbag will come out of the backpack. And the idea is that it raises you to the top of the uh, snowpack and it doesn't let let you get buried in most situations. It's amazing technology. It's another tool for the box. It's not something that'll let you do let you ski something you wouldn't typically ski, let you sure. go somewhere you wouldn't normally go just because I have this bag on. It's just yeah. another safety measure. It's another tool in the box. Jiu-jitsu, there's like an escape that you can do in jiu-jitsu, but you really don't want to be in that position, but it's helpful that when you're in that position, it helps you to get out. <laughs> yeah, totally understood. Have you ever actually been in an avalanche? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can you describe what happened and what was going on? In spring of 2014 in Alaska, we had a guide involved in an avalanche and I was the first responder. And I put myself into a classic situation of uh, rescue or safety first, where in my haste to respond so quickly, the terrain I was descending was very firm due to the avalanche. And so I took a tumble and tweaked my knee a little bit during the response, which could have had a terrible outcome for me or someone else. But luckily it was just a little tweak and I was able to continue. And I should back up just a touch and go back to the airbags. So this is the first time I ever saw an airbag actually work. The guy was able to pull his airbag right as the avalanche broke 
above him. The avalanche was a fairly manageable size at first until it hit the valley floor. And then it released the entire basin, creating the biggest avalanche I'd ever seen then and still that I've ever seen in person. Just a little bit over a mile edge to edge on the bowl before I left my safe position to respond to him, I could actually see his airbag down in the valley below. I knew my general direction. I was still following my avalanche transceiver to be sure he was still attached to his airbag due to the size of the incident. Shortly after I reached him, began digging. We had two other guys dropped off from by our pilot and with a little help from our friends, everybody went home safe at the end of the day. Like we talk about, fall back on your training, train hard, stay safe. We practice for these incidents all the time and hope that we never have to encounter them, but every once in a while, it's a possibility. What are some of the techniques that the average person needs to know to help them make it out? So it's going to happen sometimes if you're out there as a guide leading the group. I've had a few instances. I've never been completely buried, but I've had a few instances where I've kicked off pockets or larger slabs. And the thought is, first thing you want to do is escape, right? You want to put all your energy and effort into escape. So you want to ski out and off of the avalanche. And if you can't ski out and off of it, then you want to do everything you can to arrest. So you're putting your ski edges into the snow, your poles into the uh, bed surface, your hands, anything you can to dig in to keep yourself from sliding downhill with the snowpack. If you are sliding downhill with the snowpack, you want to do anything you can to protect yourself, including hands up and over your head because there may be snow blocks, hard blocks, hard slab falling down on top. You can try, if your skis come out, you can try to roll off the bed surface. Um, these are all tactics you want to use. You feel like the snow is starting to slow down, settle. You feel like you're at the toe, the bottom of the avalanche, and it's starting to set up around you. What you want to do is take one hand and put it up and over your face, one elbow up and over your face, creating an air pocket, and punch one hand high for the sky in case you do get buried. So these are all tactics that you'd want to use. Yeah, I've been involved in a couple instances, and these are all tactics that I've used. And luckily and thankfully for training and luck, that never been completely buried, but... Thank you for sharing that. What do people say after their first run? What are some of the comments? I can't imagine the first time they do something like that. It's pretty cool. It's common for us to hear best run of my life, best day of my life, that type of thing. It's incredible to hear. We just can't hear it enough. Laughing, loving it. The giggles, the, the uncontrollable laughing. Uh, we'll load the guests in at the bottom of the run while we're still loading the gear in the basket. So the pilots get to hear all the talk from the back seat of the guests when we're still outside getting some work done. So they like to let us in on the, what this guy's saying, what that guy's saying. This guy thinks maybe we should be doing something different. Everybody's freaking out. Everybody's losing their mind. So it's, it's cool to hear from a third hand what the perspective is. Cause you know, when people talk to you, they try to play it cool a little bit more than when they're <laughs> just talking to their friends. That is awesome. How would you describe the skiing in Alaska compared say to the West coast? How, how would you describe the two? Yeah. Wide open, more planar, more spines, more of everything and bigger everything. <laughs> longer runs, bigger, more wide open, planar slopes, longer, bigger spines. Everything's just bigger there. And then how long is that season? How long are you up there? About eight weeks. Some operations go about 10 weeks. We usually go about eight. The Before that, there's not a couple of things. We start about March 1st, March 8th, somewhere in there. Before that, there's not a whole lot of sunlight for operations. And the other thing is that the ski season is still, still so strong down here in the States that people aren't really making that trip yet. Okay. Um, yep. March and April ski season starting to wind down here. More daylight there, more workable hours. And uh, towards the end of April, 
we really get a big influx of we they call the, the RV crowds, the kind of more ski bum type people. The resorts are really closed. The people that live in the, or maybe work in the industry and their resorts have closed and they're coming up and they're doing what we talked about earlier, where they get an RV and you can stay at our place. You can plug in there and have a bathroom and hot water for showers, but you can also drive up the road in your RV and go do kind of your own missions and your own ski touring, that type of thing. After about May 1st, it starts to get so warm, the snowpack starts to deteriorate too quickly. To really, there's not a lot of safe workable hours. Okay. And then when you come back, say May, you're back in Truckee. Tell yep. us about what you do in the summer. Uh, that's where you and I ran into each other. A couple of different things I do in the summertime. I own a small business called Farm to Belly Personal Chef Services. And we are a personal chef and catering service who uses all natural, local, organic ingredients as much as possible from people that I know who raise and grow them. Small operation. We focus on all sorts of stuff, in-home family dinners, weddings, remote lakefront kitchen builds. And we've got a barn dinner series we do out at Sierra Valley Farms in Beckworth, which is an organic farm about 40 miles north of Truckee, which is a fantastic dinner series. Live music, hors d'oeuvres, farm tour, four-course meal, drinks included. So that's part of the summer. And I also work for the Tahoe Adventure Company, a guide for them, what I call uh, low-stress guiding after coming home from Alaska, which I really like. <laughs> Uh, yeah so we do kayak lake kayaking on on lake tahoe mountain biking uh and hiking tours give us some reasons why someone would want to take a trip out to lake tahoe and uh, link up with you for a kayak tour lake tahoe is an incredible place to spend some time if you haven't been there before and one of the best reasons to go take a tour is just to get some of the natural history from somebody who's passionate about it who lives here who spends their time out there enjoying it and learning about it and just learn. We talk about the first people who lived here. We talk about the formation of some of the towns and how and when they started, the for, the, how the lake was formed. So it's just an incredible spot to spend a couple hours, nothing more beautiful. And swimming in that lake is pretty special as well. Very healing. It's a great wake up or hangover cure when you jump yeah. in with 50, 50, what's the temperature of the lake usually? About 58, maybe a little yeah. warmer in the, in the middle of summer. It, it's a great wake up call when you jump in Lake Tahoe. It's such an incredible place. It's one of those few places you could be a, a jaded traveler where you go on vacations or you go for work and everything starts to blend into the same. Lake Tahoe is a differentiator. You go there, it's a different place. It's unlike any place you've ever been. And yeah. give us like a fact or two on the... Yeah, sure. Like 39 trillion gallons of water in the lake. And they say about a billion gallons in an inch or two inches of water. But some of the craziest things are that there's 63 tributaries to the lake and only one outlet, one known outlet, the Truckee River. Leaves out of Tahoe City, travels to Truckee, east to Reno, and then it goes north to Pyramid Lake where it's used for irrigation, drinking water, or evaporates. So it's pretty uncommon uh, for a lake of this size to never hit a bigger body of water, never go to the ocean. How about the purity of the water? You people actually filling their water bottles up in the lake and drinking it. Talk about that. I found that remarkable. Yeah, they say that bottled drinking water is supposed to be 99.997% pure and Lake Tahoe water is 99.994% pure. So, Wow. And then for yeah. all the Godfather fans, where's the Godfather 2 mansion where Michael Corleone is? Where, where's that? What beach is that on? It was on the West Shore, Tahoe City. Let's shift gears here a bit, a little bit about you as a person. When you want to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? 
Yeah, good question. Hiking, biking, or ski touring. Those are my thing. Being out in the mountains, as much as I don't like it, a good long uphill, whether it's hiking or whether it's ski touring. Good chance to do some thinking or just go blank from the outside world and just focus solely on the snowpack if that's where I'm at. Yeah, definitely to the mountains. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced? That's a great question. My biggest challenge has definitely been being a first-time dad. My daughter's 11 now, and we're really good friends. But every day is different. Like I tell her, I'm learning to be a dad just like you're learning to be a kid. So we work together. So raising a responsible and fun-loving kid is definitely a fantastic challenge. As far as work goes, my little business, Farm to Belly, has been extremely challenging since the start. Like most small businesses. The number one for us being commercial lease space here in the area is extremely expensive. And for us, it's been long time prohibitive. Business works just fine for what we're doing with it. We have our challenges. We work through them day by day. What book influenced your life or changed your mind? Oh man, the one that I just read that I really like a lot, and I'm glad you asked, it's Wild Rescues by Kevin Grange. The wilderness medic book, who's an EMT out of Jackson Hole. And for me, I really enjoyed it because it covers rescues in the national parks. So for me, it covers what I love, being outdoors in some of the most beautiful places of the world, helping people. Why don't we haven't got into it a lot yet, but I'm a, I'm a patrolman also, ski patrolman at Sugar Bowl. So I've also got a, a wilderness first response, outdoor emergency care, OEC, CPR, work with the local search and rescue team. So I've also got some medical stuff going on. So for me, this hit really close to home. And it was, there's some incredible stories about trials and tribulations of working on extreme circumstances. So Wild Rescues by Kevin Grange. Great book. What's the most exciting project or challenge you're taking on right now? That's a great question. I'm in a great challenge right now. I've got a little puppy who's the newest member of the Donner (laughs) Summit Avalanche Dog Team. She's 13 months old and we're training her to be an avalanche rescue dog. First time you ever did that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've had dogs my whole life, but I've never had a work dog. So she's very high drive. She's an incredible dog and I love her so much. She's incredibly high drive, always wants to go. And uh, keeping her busy in the summer has been good for me so far, as far as the challenge goes, but really get, we, the goal is to get her validated as an avalanche rescue dog for our Donner Summit avalanche dog team, as well as for the Placer County search and rescue team. So that's my current goal. That's my current challenge I'm working on. As far as a lifetime challenge, this little business farm to belly that I've had for a long time is really hard to grow in an area like this Truckee, where the commercial leases are absurdly high. It's really hard to find space to work. So that's been a really big, hard, hard one for me over the years. It's the business has worked well, but not necessarily grown as I first envisioned. So that's been a, quite a big challenge. Um, Give an example of that fight or flight one. What were you up against? The biggest one's probably the largest avalanche I've ever seen. And that was a long time ago in Alaska. It was 2013, we were on what we call a recon, which is a guide group. And we're doing a snow assessment. And long story short, one of our guides got swept and I was the only one in position to make an initial response. So I I was able to respond and he's fine. He's as fine as he's going to (laughs) get. But yes, just fighting through your emotions to be able to respond, a tough terrain for me to get through, to get there, personal injury that I was dealing with at the same time. When you dig your friend up, What's it like? Like that moment when he's out, he's freed. Relief and exhaustion. Exhausted. I I was exhausted. I I was there for 
I don't know, a couple minutes and then a couple buddies showed up. Our pilot brought a couple of our other guys. It's incredible story. Really super professional pilot and, and really very professional guys with me as well. And he, he, he punched down, got those guys, brought them up to me as I was working to get our other friend out and exhaustion for me. But when, once I heard him speak, I pretty much let the other guys take over and, and work the medical side. And I being the first on scene and doing the initial amount of digging by the time those other guys showed up, I was like, I keep saying exhausted. And that's what I think about all the time. You need rescuers on scene. And that's why they talk about all the time. I I bet the beer tasted good back at the bar that night. (laughs) That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that story. How about what's your dog's name? Gropple? Awesome. Gropple. Yeah. Like the snow crystal. Awesome. And what type of dog is it? He's a black lab. That's awesome. Fantastic. Good luck with that. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Usually high, high performers like yourself, they have a nighttime routine or a morning routine. What's the first like 60 minutes of your day or the last 60 minutes of your day look like? Now- I really like to punch out a workout as soon as I get up and it gets me going. If I wait until midday or evening, I can't do it in the evening. I like to drink beer in the evening. <laughs> Not a lot, but a couple. I really like to get it done first thing in the morning. So that's good for me. It gets me going. Uh, it gives me some time to think about the rest of the day and what I'm going to get into. I and mean, I don't get it done every day, but as much as possible. What's your workout look like? What are you doing? Uh, these days I'm so a lot of TRX stuff, resistance band stuff, uh, a lot of jump squats and working on the legs, trying to keep, keep strong for skiing. When you are at your best, what are you doing? Skiing, working, skiing every day, either patrol or in Alaska. That's the best me. That's where I find myself the most in tune with the world and myself is if I'm on a work ski routine every day. What is your personal definition of success? Being happy. Life's too short. There's no guarantees. How about right now, of everything you got going on from Alaska, the extreme skiing, to the tour guides, to uh, doing the uh, to, to training grapple, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? Great question. Probably my relationship every day with my daughter, always. We have a ton of fun together. My wife as well. We all live together. But the dog grapple, it's great fun. I have I have, having so much fun with it. I can't even tell you how many caves I dug last year. I could count through my journal and tell you, but lots of digging and lots of learning. And she teaches me and I teach her and we have tons of fun. Yeah. Yeah. She's the project right now for sure. You just mentioned a journal. One of the like things that, that opened my eyes, I don't know, a couple of years back is that I used to think a journal was like for a teenager, like your diary. Like I'm like, that's something I'm never going to do. And then you read biographies and the most powerful, influential, creative people in the world have journals like Leonardo da Vinci, Winston Churchill, Anne Frank, Oprah Winfrey, like the, the most, the, the, the people that basically run and create the world all have journals. When did you start a journal and, and when, when do you go to it? Yeah, it's funny. I felt the same way for a long time. After a couple of years of working in Alaska and coming home and being like, oh, who did I ski that with? And what did I do that? Who did I do that with? was really when I thought, man, I need, I need to be able to remember this better. When I'm an old man, my memory's terrible already. I'm an old guy. I want to be able to remember some of this stuff. So I started doing a little bit there. And then when I got Grapple, we've had, a, I've kept a basically daily journal with her to try to just remind me of what we're doing and help us get along and maybe someday help somebody else who's got a dog on the team. It's good fun though to be able to look back and see what we're doing. I find when there's a million things going on in your little world and you have all the marbles bouncing around your head, you sit down for five to 10 minutes and just write your thoughts down. It's amazing how it clarifies your thinking and actually helps you define your priorities where you think there's, you have 16 things to do. You write it down. You really, I got three things to do. And then the other 12 are like background noise. It really doesn't matter if I do it or don't do it. I have one or two really big priorities I got to work on. And it really helps 
slow everything down because I mind races. I coming from Philly, being Italian, I talk fast, I think fast. I sometimes the words come out before my mind. It, it really slows the world down when you start writing in a journal. What do you find? No, I agree. I agree. I, I find myself to be very similar. East Coast guy, Italian guy, fired up usually, talk mm-hmm. fast. Um, yeah. Especially after, and that's before the coffee. You put like a big I cup of dark roast coffee in and you're just flying. I can't touch it. I can't, I can't <laughs> touch it. Yeah, I agree. It's nice. It slows it down, lets you think a little bit. Yep. What advice would you have for someone either just starting skiing or just starting guiding, starting their adventure life out West? What would be, what would be your yeah, education, proper education, avalanche education, number one, mm-hmm. right? No matter if you want to be a skier, just a backcountry skier, pro skier, guide, patrolman, avalanche education, number one, for sure. Very important. Medical is great. It's just to be a backcountry skiing girl with your friends. You're going to go do stuff. Somebody's going to get hurt. And to be able to help is a great thing. To be cool. an asset instead of a liability. So be an asset instead of a liability. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Right. A couple hey, follow more. your dreams. Follow your dreams, man. Somebody's doing it. Somebody's getting paid for it. It could be you. What values do you try to pass on to your daughter? Great question. Yeah, put in a great effort. Work hard and keep your word. So put in a great effort. Keep your word. And which yeah. other one? Be a hard worker. Hard work. Keep your word. If you could go back and talk to the people who are around that dinner table back in Flemington when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? Wow. Thank you. Great up. Lucky guy. So thank you for everything. Love you. Great. And then last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Oh, wow. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. If you're upright, man, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful day. I if love you're standing that. standing up, if you're alive and breathing, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. I think that is about as good as a spot to end as any. Mike Trombetta, thank you for your time. It has been awesome to speak with you. And thank you for sharing your story. For those that would like to find you and what you do online. If you could share where they can find you on social media and all the stuff you got going on from Alaska skiing to uh, the Tahoe adventure, please share your social so people could connect with you when they're out there. Sure, thanks, Joe. Yeah, Instagram. I got to look a little couple things on there, mostly to share the Alaska stuff. So that's where you'll see that. It's uh, more powder turns. More powder. More powder turns on Instagram. Okay, at more powder turns on Instagram. Okay. Yeah, Alaska rendezvous there is AK underscore rendezvous. AK on this. That's where they can find the Alaska rendezvous helicopter skiing. Exactly. Yep. Correct. And that's where they can find you as a guide and have you take you, take them down the mountain. Absolutely. Any questions, feel free to call her. Shoot me a message. How about farm to belly? Where do you find you there? Yeah. Farm to belly.com. Awesome. Yep. We're also on Instagram at farm to belly. Yep. The guiding that you do in Tahoe. If somebody wants to find you and kayak hike with you, they're out there where they find you. Tahoe Adventure Company. Tahoe Adventure Company. Yeah, That's up. Like Kevin and Katie Hickey. Tahoe Adventure Company. That is awesome. Mike Trombetta, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story and the remarkable stuff you got going on. I wish you much success and good luck this March up in Alaska. Thanks for the interest, Joe. And thanks for chatting with me. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Mike. Good to see you, man. You too, buddy. Have a great day.